Welcome to today's reading. We're September the 9th, Isaiah chapter 3 to chapter 5, verse 30. The Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies, will take away from Jerusalem and Judah everything they depend on, every bit of bread and every drop of water. All their heroes and soldiers, judges and prophets, fortune tellers and elders, army officers and high officials, advisors, skilled craftsmen, and astrologers. I will make Boys are leaders, and toddlers are rulers. People will oppress each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. Young people will insult their elders, and vulgar people will sneer at the honorable. In those days, a man will say to his brother, Since you have a coat, you be our leader. Take charge of this heap of ruins. But he will reply, No, I can't help. I don't have any extra food or clothes. Don't put me in charge. For Jerusalem will stumble and Judah will fall because they speak out against the Lord and refuse to obey him. They provoke him to his face. The very look in their faces gives them away. They display their sin like other people in Sodom and don't even try to, to hide it. They are doomed they have brought destruction upon themselves. Let the godly, that all will be well for them. Tell the godly that all will be well with them. They will enjoy the rich reward they have earned. But the wicked are doomed, for they will get exactly what they deserve. Childish leaders oppress my people and women rule over them. Oh, my people, our leaders mislead you. They send you down the wrong road. The Lord takes his place in court and presents his case against his people. The Lord comes forward to pronounce judgment on the elders and rulers of his people. You have ruined Israel, my vineyard. Your houses are filled with things stolen from the poor. How dare you crush my people, grinding the faces of the poor into the dust, demands the Lord, the Lord of heaven's army. The Lord says, beautiful Zion is haughty, craning her elegant neck, flirting with her eyes, walking with dainty steps, twinkling her ankle bracelets. So the Lord will send scabs on her head. The Lord will make beautiful Zion bald. On that day of judgment, the Lord will strip away everything that makes her beautiful. Ornaments, headbands, crescent necklaces, earring, necklaces, bracelets, and veils. Scarves, ankle bracelets, sashes, perfume, and charms. Rings, jewels, party clothes, gowns, capes, and purses. Mirrors, fine linen garments, head ornaments, and, sh and shawls. Instead of smelling of sweet perfume they will stink she will wear a rope for a sash and her elegant hair will fall out she will wear rough burlap instead of rich robes shame will replace her beauty the men of the city will be killed with the sword and her warriors will die in battle the gates of zion will weep and mourn the city will be like a ravaged woman huddled on the ground Chapter 4. 
In that day, <clears throat> that day, so many men will be left that seven women will fight for each man, saying, Let us all marry you. We will provide our own food and clothing. Only take us, let us take your name, so we will be mocked as old maids. But in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land will be the pride and glory, and all who survive in Israel, of all, all who remain in Zion will be a holy people. Those who survive the destruction of Jerusalem and are recorded among the living, the Lord will wash the filth from beautiful Zion and clean Jerusalem in his bloodstains. With the hot breath of fiery judgment, then the Lord will provide shade for Mount Zion and all who assemble there. He will provide a canopy of cloud during the day and smoke and flaming fire at night, covering the glorious land. It will be a shelter from the daytime heat and a hiding place from the storms and rain. Now I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared his stones, and planted it with best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and carved a winepress in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes. But the grapes that grew were bitter. Now, you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? Now let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will tear down its hedges and let it be destroyed. I will break down its walls and let the animals trample it. I will make it a wild place where the vines are not pruned and the ground is not hoed. A place overgrown with briars and thorns, I will command the clouds to drop no rain on it. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. What sorrow for you who buy up house after house and field after field until everyone is evicted and you live alone in the land? But I have heard the lords of heaven armies swear a solemn oath. My houses will stand deserted. Even beautiful mansions will be empty. Ten acres of vineyards will not produce even six gallons of wine. Ten baskets of seed will yield only one basket of grain. What sorrow for those who get up early in the morning looking for a drink of alcohol and spend long evenings drinking wine to make themselves flaming drunk. They furnish wine and lovely music at their grand parties, lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, but they never think about the Lord or notice what He is doing. My people will go into exile far away because they do not know me. Those who are great and honored will starve, and the coming people will die of thirst. 
The grave is licking its lips in anticipation, opening its mouth wide. The great and the lowly and all the drunken mob will be swallowed up. Humanity will be destroyed and people brought down. Even the arrogant will lower their eyes in humiliation. But the Lord of heaven's armies will be exalted by his justice. The holiness of God will be displayed by his righteousness. In that day, lambs will find good plasters and fattened sheep and young goats will feed among the ruins. What sorrow for those who drag their sins behind them with ropes made of lies, who drag wickedness behind them like a cart. They even mock God and say, Hurry up and do something. We want to see what you can do. Let the Holy One of Israel carry out His plans, for we want to know what it is. What sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark, that bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. What sorrow for those who are wise in their own eyes and think themselves so clever. What sorrow for those who are heroes at drinking wine and boast about all the alcohol they can hold. They take bribes to let the wicked go free, and they punish the innocent. Therefore, just as fire licks up stubble and dry grass shrivels in the flame, so their roots will rot and their flowers wither, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of heaven's armies. They have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. That is why the Lord's anger burns against his people, and why he has raised his first his fist to crush them. The mountains tremble, and the corpse of his people litter the streets like garbage. But even then, the Lord's anger is not satisfied. His fist is still poised to strike. I will send a signal to distant nations far away, and whistle to those at the end of the earth. They will come racing toward Jerusalem. They will not get tired or stumble. They will not stop for rest or for sleep. Not a belt will be loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows will be sharp and their bows ready for battle. Sparks will fly from their horse's hoops and the wheels of the chariots will spin like a whirlwind. They will roar like lions, like the strongest of lions, Groveling, they will pounce on their victims and carry them off. No one will be there to rescue them. They will roar over their victims on that day of destruction, like the roar of the sea. If someone looks across the land, only dark and distress will be seen. Even the light will be darkened by clouds. And now a reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I, Paul, hope you Corinthians will put up with a little more of my foolishness. Please bear with me, for I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promise you a pure bride to one husband, Christ, but I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted. Just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent, 
You happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one you receive, or a different kind of gospel than the one you believe. But I do not consider myself inferior to any way of to these super apostles who teach such things. I may be unskilled as a speaker, but I am not lacking in knowledge. We have made this clear to you in every possible way. But I was wrong when I humbled myself and honor you by preaching God's good news to you without exception. What was I wrong when I humbled myself and honored you by preaching God's good news to you without exception? Anything in return? I robbed other churches by accepting their contributions so I could serve you at no cost. And when I was with you, you didn't have enough to live on. I did not become a financial burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia brought me all that I needed. I have never been... I have never been a burden to you, and I'll never will be. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, no one in all of Greece will ever stop me from boasting about this. Why? Because I don't love you. God knows that I do. But I will continue doing what I have always done. This will undercut those who are looking for an opportunity to... To boast that their work is like ours, these people are false prophets. They are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. But I am not sure ever surprised. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel sometimes. Or an angel of light. So it is no wonder that his servants and disguise them as servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get... In the end, they will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve. Praying the Psalms. We commit our heart and our actions and wisdom and and we and our will to God. We pray for God to rescue us. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your ways. Thank you, Father, for your action in our hearts. Thank you for your wisdom and your will be done in our lives as it is in heaven. We thank you for your care, Lord. You care for us and rescue us in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalms 53. Only fools say in their heart there is no God. They are corrupt and their actions are evil. Now one of them goes, God looks down from heaven on the entire human race. He looks to see if anyone is truly wise. If anyone seeks God. Again, God looks down from heaven on the entire human race. He looks to see if anyone is truly wise, if anyone seeks God. But no, all have turned away. All have become corrupt. No one does good, not a single one. Will those who do evil never learn? They eat up my people like bread and wouldn't think of praying to God. 
terror will grip them, terror like the, that they have never known before. And well, I, God will scatter the bones of your enemies. You will repay them to shame, for God has rejected them. Who will come from Mount Zion? Who will come from Mount Zion to rescue Israel? When God restores his people, Jacob will shout with joy, and Israel will rejoice. Proverbs 22, 28 to 29. Don't cheat your neighbor by moving the ancient boundary marks set up by previous generations. Do you see and truly competent workers? They will serve kings rather than working for ordinary people. Better intentions. Fate by itself, it is not accompanied by action, is dead. James 2.17 Fate by itself, if, it, if it's not accompanied by action, it is dead. When you are able to do good, defer it not. Polycarp. By Polycarp. P-O-L-Y-C-A-R-P. When God has convinced our minds, purified our hearts, and put his wisdom within us, our motives do, in fact, often become good. They aren't always deceptive <clears throat> simply because they proceed from within us. God has put himself within us by faith. Sometimes our intentions are the product of sincerity, seeking his will with an undivided heart. Even so, there is nothing practically worldwide worthwhile about them until they are carried out. Perhaps they honor God in spirit, but who will see his honor if they are buried deep within us? A good plan without proactive diligence is pointless. The vision that God has given his servants, the works he has called them to do, the glory he wants them to reflect, all begin in the heart. But they do not end there. They end by moving us into action. We become his children by faith, but we become his servants by work. Do not be mistaken. God weighs motives. They matter deeply to him. William Borden left his wealth in America in 1913 to serve as a missionary in Egypt. He died soon after from several meningitis. Having accomplished virtually nothing in the way of visible fruit, would God count his motives as fruitless? Our righteous God, our righteous Lord, count his motives as fruitless. Our righteous Lord could do no less. But Borden did not falter in his plans simply because he never got around to them. He died in obedience. There's a difference. Huh. Maybe that was the guy who started Borden, uh, uh, Borden cheese, Borden milk. More than something. Indeed, we may not fulfill all of our truly good intentions in his life. God has his purpose for us, and they may not include the outworking of every godly desire within us. 
but we must pursue those desires anyway. Good godly intentions are meant to be lived, not dreamed of. They are planned in our hearts to move us, not to entertain us. The impulse of a spirit-filled person are a call to action. Is there anything you have always let, felt God might want you to do, but you have never gotten around to it? Is his agenda always a matter of one day to you? But put feet on your intentions. Live them well. Our wonder-working God is calling his people to action. Amen. Okay, let's move on. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast. Today I'm going to be reviewing an incredible work put together by a guy called Green, Chris Tigreen, excuse me, T-I-E-G-R-E-E-N. He has compiled 365 daily devotionals to transform our minds. And the title of the book is called The One Year Walk With God Devotional. I really, it's food for thought, God ordained, God inspires each and one of us to help the fellow man. So this is his spin on helping us to, uh, to wake up. And I really like, the, uh, I'm going to start off with May 1st because that was yesterday. And don't you know, I'm always catching up. I'm Fernando and your host for this reading. I hope you enjoy this. Let's go ahead and dedicate this um, meaningful objective to God that we may exercise the good words that he has given us so they would give us a good life day by day in obedience to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our master and warrior. Let's see, commander-in-chief. Okay, Heavenly Father, we thank you. Hallelujah. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending the word. And thank you that we exercise the word in our lives, Lord God, that it be vibrant, that it will turn up on all the lights inside our hearts and minds, keep us robust and and grateful and in tune with you, Lord. And we thank you. We dedicate this work to you. We dedicate the voice. We bless the ears, just like Jesus prayed for us, Lord. We pray for the listeners. And the new people, we pray for their salvation. We ask you that they be enlightened by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Be filled with the glory of the Lord in abundant life, like he promised on his word. You will receive abundant life, spiritually, physically, mentally, socially, financially. Amen. In Jesus' name. I can go on and on, huh? All right, May 1st. The scripture for today is Ecclesiastics 1.8. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear is filled of hearing. Huh, Ecclesiastics 1.8. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear is filled of hearing. And Thomas A. Kempis, he quoted by saying, Let temporal things serve your use, but the eternal be the objective of your desire. 
Let temporal things serve your use, but the eternal be the object of your desire. Amen. And that's where we're at right there. Amen. Inward. Human nature is never satisfied. Whatever gifts God has given us, we want more. When we've gotten a taste of God's generosity, our appetites are with it. W-H-E-T-T-E-D. Not filled. We are always waiting for the next good thing. The good thing about our constant quest for more is that, when rightly directed, we can have it. This may be surprisingly to those of us who have heard sermon after sermon on the virtues of contentment. It's true that desire for the things of this world, as Solomon described, is never fully satisfied, but there is a godly craving that is rewarded with blessings upon blessings. If our dissatisfaction moves us towards God and and His kingdom rather than toward temporal fulfillment, it is a holy dissatisfaction. It will eventually be rewarded. God never denies those who want more of Him. Woohoo! Amen. Solomon said, The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear is filled of hearing. Is this bad? as he implies, or can it be good? That depends. It's bad if our eternal cravings are misdirected toward temporal things. It's good if we're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And it's amazing. God put that seeker inside of us. Indeed. Are you dissatisfied with life? Ask yourself, why? If you are filling your life with things that don't last, you will never be satisfied at all. How can you be? The things you seek are not inherently satisfying. But God is. If you are filling your life with Him and letting Him fill your life with Himself, He will satisfy, and when you grow discontent again, He will give you more. You will find yourself fully content for a time and then realize there is so much more of Him to discover. Your holy cravings will drive you deeper into His presence. That's not a problem. He is inexhaustible of His riches. We can forever explore Him if we want more. There will be more to find. It's amazing. I've been at this game uh, for 37-something years of seeking God. And my experience is that When I was bubbling over with joy and contentment and love and wisdom is when I was fully read of the Gospels, like the Gospel of John or 1 John 1 through 5. You know, we always test everything, see what works. Testing, testing, testing. So I tested um, reading. So I'll sit down there and read for a couple hours and would read um, 1 John 1 through 5, which doesn't take two hours, takes only 15 minutes at the most. And then John 14, 15, 16, and 17, another 15, 20 minutes there. But it takes me two hours to get through. Um, I was content when I went on my business and get to meet other people. I was bubbling with joy and, and laughter and contentment. Contentment is what we're after. The Word of God, it seems like we have to take a big dose. But in the last 37 years, I think I've been contented about maybe a couple of years. You know, 
if I'll be honest with you. Uh, it's always seems like I'm missing it. You know, I'm missing this, I'm missing that. So I got hundreds of books and I'm trying to find it. Um, I, I do communion. I already did communion. Stretches, air, air breathing, which is a huge one. I noticed that all of my life, most of my life, when I was about... 15, 16, 17, the authorities sent me up to a road camp for an unruly child. And and I did good. Under the authoritative words over my head, I became a top dog there and exercised quite a bit and became a young man, 15, 16 years old. What was my point? I forgot my point. <laughs> It'll come back to me in a minute. Please hang in there with me. And the rabbit trail took off and... He'll come back. Watch out. Here it comes. Okay, let's see. The point was contentment, contentment, reading, reading, authoritative words. Hmm. But the idea is, is uh, well, when, once I got out of the authoritative words, it didn't take me about a year later to be unruly. So having a, uh, an objective of like-minded individuals like us, you know, through this podcast, we're around the world. Uh, We have the same desire because we have the Holy Spirit, you know, beckoning us to head in the right direction. So what works for me uh, is, is a suggestion. You're probably more advanced in getting contentment but I, f- I feel like uh, we were turned neurotic when we were children by my dad's drinking and my mother's uh, constant uh, how she was going to put food on the table for five kids and my dad wasn't around. I'm still amazed right now how she did it. There was a lot of gaps. She had a lot of diapers to change, a lot of kids, <clears throat> no running water, you know, uh, no car. It just amazes me, you know, how God, the only the only equation I come out is Father God, Father God. Because I was a child, I was missing my dad, and I sensed Father God. Father God was always there. Father God was always the go-to prayer, the go-to when I felt sorry for myself. And he always showed me that he was there. So I try not to feel sorry for self no more. And be a soldier. I love you. Thank you for listening to me. And if that rabbit ever comes back, I'll hope you shoot the son of a gun. When I was about 15, 16 years old, I went to Mexico and I met my mom's brother. And he was a chief of police uh, for 27 years. He was the chief of police for that little town, border town. And they would, and they would compete with the American side in shooting. And he got so well, he would win year after year. That's the story goes. And I got a demonstration of how good he was. We, uh, we went out with some rifles with the patrol car, if you will, up into the mountains looking for uh, rabbits or any kind of game. We went hunting. And I, we, I, saw, I saw a jackrabbit. We creeped up with the police car, but the patrol car got off of there, got the, the rifle. And he gave it to me. I don't know if it was a 30-30 or whatever, with a scope. And I saw the jackrabbit way over there, and I aimed with all my heart. I didn't want to disappoint my uh, my cousins and my uncle, you know. 
I was physically fit because I had just come out of that camp and, and looking like a movie star, physically fit. And I shot, but I missed him. He ran. And my uncle said, throw me the rifle. And what? <laughs> you know, the city folks. So I just threw it at him. He caught the rifle in midair, and he, he cocked it in midair as, he, as he's swinging towards the rabbit, to the jackrabbit, and boom, within split second, I was, my mouth was just open. The rabbit was so far, but he got him. Me and my cousin ran over after to go get the jackrabbit, the rabbit, and, uh, and lo and behold, he had, I had pierced his ears. I had pierced the rabbit's ears right above his head with my shot. So thank God that I'm a good shot, huh? It just, you know, the rifle was a lot more powerful than I thought. Anyway, uh, later on that day, I, I shot a little, uh, another rabbit, which was one we could eat. And uh, they taught me how to scale it, how to cut it, and how to roast it in the fire. And it's a great opportunity for me as a young man to uh, have a father figure. Anyway, God bless you. Take care. Talk to you later. I hope you enjoy the story. this time. May 2nd, Meaningful Riches. Scripture for today is Ecclesiastes 2.1. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Ecclesiastes 2.1. John Henry Jowett said he has been known to be quoted to quote, the real measure of our wealth is how much we'd be worth if we lost all our money. The real measure of our wealth is how much we'd be worth if we lost all our money. John Henry Jowett. Inward. An exceedingly wealthy businessman who recently had bypass surgery was asked in an interview how the experience would change his life. He responded that he would spend more money and never, for one example, let any wine that costs less than $100 per bottle pass through his lips. His great insight in his time of crisis was that life is short and must be lived to its fullest. That's not a bad philosophy, if one knows how to define a full life. But his definition reflected a faulty foundation based on very short-lived values. A mature Christian disciple can recognize the fallacy of temporal pleasure as a life goal. We live for something much more lasting than the cult of earthly empires and personal gain. Real pleasure based on the realities of God's kingdom and our fellowship with Him, this at least is our ideal. But if we examine ourselves carefully, we'll often find a conflict within us, a revulsion towards the businessman's philosophy 
but a lifestyle that reflects it. Human nature since the fall is to build a heaven on earth, to reconstruct Eden. Though we are promised an eternal heaven, we want heaven here too. Can't you see it in the comforts we crave and the prayers we raise? Eating is always just out of our reach, but we keep reaching. Indeed, Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 2, 11, what a life of investing in the temporal accomplishes. Nothing. His resume of investment is impressive, but he is disappointed, even disillusioned with the prophet. It is all meaningless, he concluded. One day we will all die, and unless we invested in the internal, nothing remains. Contrast the futility of Ecclesiastes with the riches of the gospel of Jesus. There is an inheritance that comes from God. The rich businessman missed it, and even when confronted with death, multitudes do. But the eyes of faith can see the riches of the kingdom of God. Learn to live for them at all costs. May 3rd, our highest purpose. God created us in his own image. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Genesis 1.27 The rule of life for a perfect person is to be in the image and likeness of God. Clement of Alexandria In word No one can live wisely and with purpose without realizing where we came from, where we are going, and why it all came about in the first place. That is the foundation for everything. If we don't understand that, we don't understand the gospel, and we don't have the context to make daily decisions that will align with God's plan. We must know we are created from Him, for Him, and in His likeness. It's a remarkable truth. We were meant to be the image of God. And though the image was shattered in the fall, God's original intention lives on. He was not surprised by the fall, and his plan included fashioning a people who re would reflect his glory. He still means for us to bear his image. That's why he put his spirit in the heart of sinful but redeemed mankind. These heathen vessels that we are, humanity will bear his image. He will be seen in this creation. Never mind that his image bears once forfeited that privilege, even before we lost it. He had determined to recraft it in us. He bears his image in us himself. Indeed. We get caught up in jobs, mortgages, family, businesses, relationships, and pastimes, trying to find some sense of fulfillment in all of them. It's easy to get distracted that way, 
but we have a higher calling lying underneath it all. We are made to be like Him. That's the point of it all. That was the purpose of our first parents, and that is the purpose of our redemption. Adam and Eve were molded after Him, but we are even inhabited by Him. We are daily being conformed to the image of God in Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Do you live with that awareness? Are you mundane, daily decisions made with that in mind? Meditate on this amazing truth daily and let it guide your life. Whatever your other desires, there is no higher calling than this. It's what we're made for. And the scripture, Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. One too many voices, Proverbs 9, 4, and verses 16. Let all who are simple come in here, she says to those who lack judgment. Let all who are simple come in here, she says to all those who lack judgment, Proverbs Chapter 9, verses 4 and 16. <clears throat> and Joseph Jobert said, Common sense suits itself to the ways of the world. <clears throat> Wisdom tries to conform to the ways of heaven. I guess common sense is good when you direct it to get you to Wisdom. Kind of like a spark plug, would you say? Inward, wisdom and folly both take on human voice in Proverbs. They are principles personified. Principles, principles personified. Repeatedly throughout the book, wisdom calls, so does folly. Wisdom promises everlasting blessings. Folly promises a moment of pleasure. Their voices are incessant. Insisting. So which one is quoted in the verse above? Both wisdom in verse 4, folly in verse 16. They They say exactly the same thing. They speak to those who are simple and lacking in judgment. The only difference between the two sayings is... In the response of the hearer. Perhaps we are unaware of the constant call. Perhaps we do not realize that every choice is response to a voice. The voice of wisdom or the voice of folly. When you are tempted, both are speaking. When you are in search of security, both call out. 
When you are making your plans, both compete for your attention. When you are spending your money and your time, they re they beckon. Have you not heard them? They always say the same thing. Come in here. Wisdom is like a spouse, a permanent partner who is always there supporting you for your own good. Folly is like a prostitute. The promise of it is enticing, but the result is brief and disappointing. When Proverbs speak of wives and prostitutes, faithfulness and adultery, it speaks in literal terms, but it also speaks figuratively. We make choices daily. We are faced with a repeated choice between wisdom and folly, and their voices can sound so much alike. Indeed, whose voice do you hear? Wisdom isn't flashy, rarely impresses and never demands. Folly is brash, showy, and frequently pushy. Again, wisdom isn't flashy, rarely impresses, and never demands. On the other hand, folly is brash, show-off and frequently pushy. She says you were to put here to have a blast. Wisdom disagrees. You were put here to have and to be a blessing. Can you tell the difference? When they both call to which voice are, are your ears attuned? Train them well. A lot is riding on your ability to hear. <clears throat> I think folly has been calling so many people that look at the overweight in America. There's three million associated death with alcohol a year. They said suicide is every few minutes in, in young kids. So to be, to ask Christ to be, the, to have the mind of Christ in the morning You could be of service to somebody, a phone call or an encouraging thought. We are the voice of wisdom. We are the voice. Principles personified. Thank you for listening. May God bless you. May 12th. Why not? Psalms 910 says, Those who know your name will trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Psalms 910. And James Dobson said, trust involves letting go and knowing God will catch you. Inward. Something is holding us back. Perhaps it is a fear that might be, maybe we're wrong about God. Maybe we feel presumptuous. It is possible if we have been disappointed in the past that our misunderstanding is haunting us. We hear a voice in the back of our minds that says, what if God doesn't come through? What if he makes it more difficult than I can handle? 
What if all my hopes are illusions? So we hesitate to trust God. We pray and we hope, but faith remains incomplete and doubt lingers. We ask him to help us, but we withhold judgment until we seeing his response. The call of scripture is contrary to our natural inclination. We are called to believe God with reckless abandon. Not just believe that he is there and that he is involved with us somehow, though we're not sure exactly how, but that he is actively, personally seeking our good and answering our prayers. We are to give up our own strategy and ambitions to relinquish all plan B's, to recklessly, irrevocably cast ourselves completely into his arms. <clears throat> but we're reluctant and the problem always comes back to us. In spite of his track record, we don't seem to completely trust him. Why not? Indeed. God called Abraham to leave Haran and go to a place to be revealed later. Jesus invited Peter to step out of the boat and walk on water. That kind of call is scary, though typically in God's kingdom. But why is it scary? Where could he leads us that we regret. Would he ever lead us into danger, but not out of it? God calls us to reckless trust, the kind that prepares no safety net and reserves nothing for a spiritual rainy day. That kind of trust is broken, leaves no room to save face, to save face. But it cannot be broken. Try to find someone God has forsaken. Observe his faithfulness and ask yourself, why wouldn't I trust him wholeheartedly? Think about it. Why not? And the scripture is Psalms 910, where it says, Those who know your name will trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Apparently, we have to start seeking him. And we have to know his name through trial and error. And then we can have belief in the system. We can believe and our trust will grow. Maybe we have things backwards. We have to fail a lot and to trust him so we can develop that trust from him um, bringing us out of that failure. Well, that's what happened to me. I know his name. I know he's there. I, I know I don't have to get self-pitying and go down asking for work when there's no work, no money for the rent. I know he's there. I need to clap my hands, go to sleep early, turn the TV off, get up early and go look for work. Go seek work like I sock. Seek him in prayer. Go seek an answer. It is there. May the Lord bless us as we go on our journey. Have a great day. May 22nd, responding to pain. No harm behalds the righteous, but the wicked have filled their of tr trouble. Proverbs 12, 21. 
No harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked have their fill of trouble. Trials enable people to rise above religion to God. In words, several years ago, a rabbi wrote a popular book asking why bad things happen to good people. It's a legitimate question. We see godly folk go through some very difficult things. So doesn't our experience contradict this proverb? Must we generalize this verse and water it down to get anything out of it? Not necessarily. We need to approach this proverb with some clear definitions. We need to define harm, and we need to define righteous. Who is righteous? Surely not those who have it all together. None of us do. The problem would be unrealistic if it meant that. And the Bible isn't unrealistic. Those who are righteous know how God is and hang on to that knowledge regardless of the situation. They desire God enough to trust Him. Their past may not be righteous, but their direction is. What is harm? Surely not difficult circumstances or pain. Otherwise, the problem would be a shallow assumption based on fantasy. And the Bible is not a shallow fantasy. No. Trials and pain are not ultimately harmful unless they diminish our relationship with God. But the righteous will not let them do that. They let their trials draw them closer to God. They see His grace more clearly in the aftermath of pain. They trust Him more truly when obstacles hinder trust. They serve Him more sacrificially when it costs something. Through pain, we see Him better, and He becomes more real to us. There is no harm in that. Indeed, this proverb is less about the trials that befall us than our reaction to them. Nothing that the righteous go through is truly harmful if faith is maintained. But troubles are troublesome indeed to those whose faith is conditional. Their love of God depends only on what He does to make them feel good. Trials come to all and our reaction defines us. Are we righteous or wicked? The test of pain will make it clear. May 21st. It is not our trust that keeps us, but the God in whom we trust who keeps us. Oswald Chambers. Scripture is Job 31, 24, and 28. If I have put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security, I would have been unfaithful to God on high. Inward. Moses once had or once gave a very long discourse on the blessings of obeying God and the curses of disobedience. God had entered a covenant with his people on one which he would never default. Would his people? Moses explained what would happen if they did. Their enemies will lay siege to their cities and untie their high fortresses' walls in which they trust 
fall down. Deuteronomy 28:52. That is one of the dreadful results of sin. We begin to trust our best efforts rather than the ever-dependable God. Our faith in God crumbles and we must come up with substitutes. However flawed they may be, in Moses' speech, it was the high wall of cities. Protection, just in case God happened to fail. In Job lament, it's gold, provision, just in case God happened to lack. There is no shortage of securities that we set up to ensure our safety, health, comfort, or pleasure. We can depend upon them heavily. When we do, we take a huge risk. We may gradually lean, learn to place more trust in them than in God. By God's standards, that's unfaithfulness. Indeed. Where do you look for your sense of peace? An account, an education, the national defense, airport security, stations, standard airbags, the list could go on for pages. Know that there is anything wrong with earthly insurance in this various form it takes, but our trust in wealth or walls can be veiled statement of mistrusting God. He must let our false securities fail before our trust turn back on him. Do you remember? His eyes is on the sparrow and the hairs on your head are numbered. The only thing that can undo you is your deliberate disobedience. And even then, it's under his supervision. Let yourself trust the one who is unfailingly trustworthy. Accept no substitutes. Rest in his sovereign arms. Amen. May 25th, Proverbs 27, 20 says, Death and destruction are never satisfied, and neither are the eyes of man. Proverbs 27, 20. And Edith Schaefer said, It is so important not to waste what is precious by spending all of one's time complaining over what one does not have. Edith Schaefer. In word, nearly every child has sworn an oath to his parents. Just buy me this one thing and I'll never ask for anything else again. It is a hollow promise from the beginning. Every parent knows it isn't true. Nearly every Christian has offered a similar prayer to God. Just answer this one thing, and I promise I'll be satisfied. It's a hollow promise. God knows better deep down, so do we. What is it about human nature that is always craving but is never content? We all approach milestones in our lives with the thought that once the milestone is accomplished, we will be happy with our lives. But we never are. 
As soon as the next job is realized, the next house is bought, the next car is driven, the next relationship results in marriage, or whatever we're looking forward to is a accomplished, we set our sights on something new. Whatever the reason, we can know or at least one thing about our cravings. They indicate that we're missing something deep within us. We have a gnawing hunger for more meaning, more purpose, more results. We can thank God that he made us that way. It's his design for our fruit bearing and our growing relationship with him. But we also have to be aware of how sin has distorted that design. We turn it towards possessions, people, places, and personal agendas. Instead of letting a holy discontentment drive us toward God and his kingdom, we let a twisted discontentment drive us toward fulfilling our needs in unholy ways. We're looking for life in all the wrong places. <clears throat> Indeed, the proverb is true, the eyes of man are never satisfied, but a maturing relationship with God will shine light on our dissatisfaction. It will also turn it towards the things that really fulfill us. We will find that it is, in fact, possible to be content with the things of the world and still be driven by a desire for God. He is the only one who satisfies. Good morning, up and at them. We're going to be reading today, uh, June 11th. It says, uh, regarding the weak, blessed is he who has regard for the weak. The Lord delivers him in times of trouble, Psalms 41.1. He who demands mercy and shows none ruins the bridge over which he himself is to pass, Thomas Adam. In word, imagine having a child who doesn't seem to care much for other people. He or she is completely absorbed in self-centered activities, always playing for personal gain and never making any Real sacrifices for anyone else. Even when confronted with desperate need, this child seemed not to be moved. <clears throat> How would you feel about this child when he is in trouble? As a parent, your sympathies will naturally lead you to take care of your child, but with uh, what enthusiasm? If the child has demonstrated no feeling for others, you will likely have a strong desire for him to learn compassion. On the other hand, how would you feel about a child who has always gone out of his way to help everyone else? Your compassions are stirred for someone who is by nature compassionate. When a sympathetic person is in deep trouble, he has the sympathy of others to draw on. So it is with God. He loves every one of us, even those who are cold-hearted, but he delights in rescuing a compassionate person. If we rarely focus on others, God will often let us sit in our difficulties for a while until we learn how to others have felt in their need. Indeed, those who have regarded for the weak always have God's sympathetic ear. The problem is that we get so completely wrapped up in our own agenda at times that we hardly notice the needs around us. 
It isn't that we don't care about other people. We just don't care enough to feel their pain or even to notice their hardships. We're too occupied with our own businesses. In His mercy, God cares for our needs regardless of our level of compassion. But He cares for them more readily, more powerfully, and more demonstrably if we have demonstrated His nature towards others. Do we withhold grace? Then grace will be hard to find. Or are we examples of mercy? If so, we have mercy in abundance. Amen and amen. And reading for the day is Psalm 41.1. Blessed is he who regards for the weak. The Lord delivers him out of trouble.